My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 50 Objects Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects podcast. In last week's episode, we covered the tragic murder of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith at Carthage Jail on June 27th of 1844. This event would basically put the growth of the church on hold as potential schisms arose while the Mormons tried to determine who would lead them going forward. As the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles quickly returned from their missions, new potential candidates began to circulate their bids for leadership. The next six weeks would determine everything. Before diving in, however, let's talk about some history that was taking place at the same time. On a recent flight from L.A., I watched the movie The Greatest Showman. It's a very entertaining musical based on the life of P.T. Barnum. Though Barnum would found a spectacular traveling circus, the way he went about it was almost nothing like it was portrayed in the movie. P.T. Barnum would buy and found his famous museum in 1841, and he would run that museum for the next 24 years. However, as portrayed in the movies, many Americans did not like this museum of oddities. In November of 1863, the Confederate Army of Manhattan would attempt and fail to burn down the museum. In 1865, however, the local arsons would succeed, and New York locals would be witness to the most spectacular fire the city had ever seen. Not only did the building burn down, but animals were seen jumping from the windows only to be shot by the police. Most of the animals died in the flames, including two beluga whales that were boiled to death in their tanks. The fire would live on in stories and myths for decades, making one fireman famous. A man named Johnny Denham, who sadly didn't make it into the movie, Denham claimed that as he entered the building, he was set upon by a tiger and he successfully fought it off with an axe before carrying a 400-pound woman on his shoulders out through the front doors. This event would ultimately end the museum business for P.T. Barnum, who would then go on to dabble in politics before moving to the circus business. In the year 1870, one year before establishing his world-famous circus, P.T. Barnum would tour the United States looking for inspiration and more oddities. His travels would take him to the dusty Rocky Mountains of Utah, where he met the secluded Mormon prophet Brigham Young. In their conversation, P.T. Barnum would hint to Brigham Young that his presence would make his future circus a major hit. Barnum, said Brigham Young, what will you give me to exhibit me in New York and in the eastern cities? Barnum would reply, quote, well, Mr. Young, referring to Brigham, I'll give you half the receipts, which I guarantee shall be $200,000 per year. For I consider you the best show in America. End quote. Just to give you an idea, two hundred thousand dollars in eighteen fifty would be worth over six million dollars today, a king's ransom that Brigham Young would obviously turn down. But Barnum was on to something. Going back to eighteen forty four, with the Mormons facing a giant potential schism, it would take a man capable of being the best show in America to keep it together. Today's object is Brigham Young's Transfiguration. So what is Brigham Young's Transfiguration and how did it come about? For the 14 years since the church's foundation, 
Joseph Smith worked tirelessly to develop the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Among the many elements of the gospel, one of the most comforting to the Mormons was an explanation of what would happen to them after their death. However, he didn't prepare them for what was to happen after his death, and that would be a cause for crisis. Nauvoo in July of 1844 was a very somber place. Mormons would record in their journals that people were seen crying in groups and all work and business ceased. The twelve apostles were en route to Nauvoo, as were other leaders, and rumors were now circulating that other cities in the county were now meeting with Illinois officials to have the Nauvoo charter terminated. This could potentially ruin everything. It would mean the city was no longer lawful. There would be no police, no Nauvoo militia, no local courts to protect the Mormons from Missouri lawmen who wanted to enter into Illinois and exercise justice for the Missouri-Mormon War. Into this mess waited Sidney Rigdon. Sidney had played a very important role in the church for the past 12 years, as we've discussed in this podcast. He was the first counselor to Joseph Smith at the time of the death. Some considered Sidney's role in the restoration and the fact that he was the first counselor obvious evidence that he should lead the church going forward. Sidney himself felt that this was the case and presented himself as the church's guardian. Most Mormons didn't know that a bumpy relationship had developed between Sidney Rigdon and the church over the previous years. When the Mormons were expelled from Missouri in 1839, Sidney decided he wouldn't follow them. He seemed to be done with all of this and would swear to never follow any revelation again that didn't tend to his comfort and interest, regardless of whether it came from Joseph Smith, God Almighty, or anyone else. That quote came from his own journal. Sidney would encourage the Mormons to scatter after Missouri, even claiming, quote, the work seems as though it has come to an end, end quote. When Joseph Smith got out of Liberty Jail and reorganized the church in Nauvoo, Sidney came along. There, Joseph Smith would seek to have Sidney Rigdon replaced by John C. Bennett, the man instrumental in acquiring the Nauvoo Charter we discussed in episode 27. However, Bennett would falter, he'd be excommunicated, and Joseph would be left with Sidney again. Now, in 1843, a conference of the church at Nauvoo temporarily disfellowshipped Sidney for allegedly aiding anti-Mormons. Even though Joseph Smith would propose that Sidney be excommunicated, common consent would leave him in as the first counselor. Of keeping him a counselor, he felt no longer fit the role. Joseph Smith would write, quote, I have thrown him, Sidney, off my shoulders, and you have again put him on me. You may carry him, but I will not. End quote. Joseph Smith, looking to get some space, would send Sidney to Pittsburgh to build up the church in that area. So, after the prophet's murder, Sidney immediately left Pittsburgh for Nauvoo. He felt it was finally his time to lead. Also at this time, Brigham Young was returning from his mission in the eastern states. If you recall in episode 32, Joseph Smith worked hard with the Mormons in Nauvoo to restore all the work surrounding temples and authority. It was recorded in John Taylor's journal that Joseph Smith said, quote, Now if they kill me, you have got all the keys and all the ordinances, and you can confer them upon others, end quote. So the Twelve had the keys to lead. Brigham Young was the president of the Twelve. He led the extremely successful mission of the Twelve Apostles to Europe, He held the Mormons together after the Missouri crisis. He kept order and led the Mormons to Illinois and convinced them not to scatter, but to wait for Joseph and to rebuild. 
Brigham Young never doubted Joseph Smith for 12 years. He claimed that he sat at the feet of the prophet and, quote, an angel never watched him closer than I did, end quote. According to the leadership, Brigham Young and the 12 apostles had all the keys to lead. Let's pause the story here and touch on one other person vying for leadership in the church. To most of the Mormons in Nauvoo, this person seemed to come out of nowhere, and it's easy to see why. James Strang had only been a member of the church for six months when Joseph Smith was killed. After Strang was baptized, he sought out Joseph Smith and was called on a mission to Wisconsin when Joseph Smith died. Soon after the prophet's death, Strang began to circulate a letter among the Mormons in Wisconsin and Michigan. This letter has come to be known as the Letter of Appointment. Now, quick side note, this letter still exists today. It can be found in the Yale Library. Now, Strang claimed that the letter stipulated that Joseph Smith wrote to him and appointed him to be the new prophet if anything should happen to Joseph. Strang even started to get a minor following in Wisconsin and Michigan due to the letter. However, Mormon missionaries from Nauvoo quickly denounced the letter, calling it a forgery. If you look up the letter at the Yale Library website, you can see that they were probably right. The letter is written in block writing. Almost every letter written by Joseph Smith has been collected or is being collected by the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Joseph Smith wrote everything in long cursive, and it was pretty hard to read. This was not that, and the modern eye can easily see the difference. So String was summoned to Nauvoo where he would be excommunicated. This, however, wouldn't be the end of String. We'll get back to him shortly. So back to the story of Sidney Rigdon and Brigham Young. Immediately after the death of Joseph Smith, Brigham Young sent a letter to Sidney Rigdon asking him to meet with the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in Nauvoo. Sidney would arrive on August 3rd before Brigham Young. Upon arriving, Parley P. Pratt scheduled for Sidney to meet with him and the Apostles already in Nauvoo. Sidney agreed, but then he didn't show up to the meeting. Pratt, who had originally introduced Sidney to the Mormon church, felt Sidney was putting them off. Over the course of the next week, Sidney Rigdon would put off meetings with all of the Apostles preaching around Nauvoo to crowds as large as 5,000 people. The apostles began to worry that Sidney would catch up the people before Brigham and the rest of the apostles had arrived from the east. The apostles in Nauvoo, on August 6th, they were Parley P. Pratt, Willard Richards, George A. Smith, and the stumbling John Taylor, still recovering from his gunshots at Carthage, pled with Sidney to stop meeting with church members until the rest of the apostles returned to Nauvoo. Sidney agreed, but that evening, he sermonized a large Mormon congregation again. He told them that mobs were coming to Nauvoo, that he remembered the old Missouri difficulties and that the church needed a guardian and that he should be appointed immediately to get things in order. Finally, that night, Brigham Young and the rest of the apostles arrived in Nauvoo to a large, cheering crowd. The next day, August 7th, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles met together for the first time since the death of Joseph Smith. They'd meet two times that day, but unfortunately, no notes of those meetings were recorded. We can guess, though, some of the topics they must have discussed. Debts were due in Nauvoo, both on the temple and lands. A prophet and a president had to be appointed to begin the organization of payments. Joseph Smith had had many private meetings in Nauvoo these last months. Emma circulated ideas that he wanted his children to lead the church going forward. Was that true? 
On top of that, Joseph Smith introduced new gospel principles around the temple that needed to be recorded and organized. He'd introduced a council of 50 that would push for governmental discussions and help continue to seek redress. The Relief Society had sprung up, but only in Nauvoo. How was that to be continued? But most importantly was the topic of succession. In March of 1844, in a meeting, Joseph Smith had given charge to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as the only ones who had all the keys to continue the work. So the apostles finished their meeting and called for a meeting to take place on August 13th where they would sort out everything with the church in attendance. Sidney Rigdon agreed. However, the next day, August 8th, was a day where this would all come to an end. As Sidney Rigdon was scheduled to speak at a prayer meeting, the apostles thought nothing big was going on, so they scheduled a meeting of their own to continue their discussions. None of them thought the meeting was important enough to attend. But, as luck would turn out, Rigdon had organized for almost 8,000 Mormons in Nauvoo to meet in an assembly in a nearby grove while the apostles were meeting in John Taylor's home. Now, by mere chance, as the apostles were meeting in the home, Brigham Young noticed the Mormons making their way to meet in the grove, and he followed them. He found a meeting had commenced, wherein Sidney Rigdon preached about his role as first counselor and the work he'd accomplished for the church. Sidney stood high above them on a wagon and demanded a vote take place, wherein he'd finally be appointed the church's leader and guardian. That vote wouldn't take place, however, as Brigham Young forcibly took the stand after Sidney. Uninvited, Brigham said he felt a surge of the Spirit and spoke to the Mormons about the true organization of the church. According to Brigham's journal, I magnified my calling and scarce a man stood by me to brunt the battle. At that moment, the rest of the apostles arrived at the meeting after Brigham hadn't shown up to theirs. Brigham and the apostles asked the members to reconvene that afternoon at 2 o'clock so all leaders could be in attendance. The meeting had finally arrived. This meeting would be what the Mormon church would call a solemn assembly. All the living leadership was in attendance. Brigham Young, Sidney Rigdon, and the Twelve were sitting on the stand. The Nauvoo High Council were seated to the right of the stand, and the Seventies and the Aaronic Priesthood were seated in the front seats. The sisters were on the left. The wind blew strongly through the grove, but Brigham stood up and delivered a very powerful speech. He stated, quote, The Twelve were appointed by the finger of the Almighty, and they were an independent body, that held the keys of the kingdom to the whole world, so help me God, end quote. The congregation might choose a Rigdon or somebody else, but such an action would sever them from the direct line of authority. Brigham then reminded the crowd of his unfaltering service. Rigdon had lost his standing in the church. So there, in the open with the wind blowing hard, Brigham gave a two-hour speech. It was full of humor, anecdotes, and a bite directed at his opponents. In the end, Brigham would remark that the Holy Ghost felt as though it rested upon him. As Brigham Young finished his speech, it was now Sidney's turn. He, however, wouldn't get up. He would say that he was too worn out from his speech that morning. Kind of surprising, considering all the speeches and the politicking that he had done this previous week. Nobody got up to speak for Sidney, and the Mormons together voted to sustain Brigham Young as the next prophet and president of the church. Now, what was the transfiguration? There are no direct notes taken from Brigham Young's speech, but of the hundreds of journal entries written by Mormons that attended that meeting, something changed in Brigham Young. Some claimed the change happened during Sidney Rignan's prayer meeting that morning, 
Others claimed it happened during the afternoon meeting, but Brigham Young, in the eyes of the Mormons, had transfigured to Joseph Smith. Some Mormons would record in their journals that they swore they saw Joseph Smith take the stand in that prayer meeting that morning. Others would record that they heard the voice of Joseph Smith speaking from Brigham Young. Regardless, all of them felt that Joseph Smith's spirit was with Brigham Young and he would be the direction to follow going forward. This was Brigham Young's transfiguration. So the rank-and-file Mormons decided to follow Brigham Young. But what happened to Sidney Rigdon? Sidney wouldn't follow Brigham Young. This was a very bitter pill to swallow. He became antagonistic to the apostles and immediately opened a printing press and started to criticize the church. Sidney Rigdon, the first counselor to Joseph Smith, would be excommunicated from the Mormon church. He returned back to the East with a small following who would eventually leave him. Sidney Rigdon would never recount his testimony of the Book of Mormon, though he didn't follow the apostles. He'd live out the rest of his life in New York. Now, who wasn't in attendance at this meeting on August 8th? James Strang. As the Mormons were working out this succession crisis and sustaining Brigham Young, Strang was in the process of announcing that he'd found new plates that contained additions to the Book of Mormon. With the plates and the letter of appointment, Strang began to gather a small following. He would send some missionaries to Nauvoo to recruit more followers. The missionaries would only have a little bit of success, but the people they converted were big names in early Mormonism. First was John Page. If you remember in episode 29, John was called to dedicate the Holy Land with Orson Hyde. He'd never make it out of the States, however, and eventually fall away from the church. When Strang's missionaries started teaching in Nauvoo, Page arrived as a convert too. Page would finally be excommunicated. Strang would also convert William Smith, the younger brother of Joseph Smith, and even for a time, Strang had the attention of Joseph Smith's mother, Lucy Mack Smith. Lucy, though, would ultimately, in the end, side with the apostles and encourage all her children to follow them. Although Strang had limited success with the Mormons in Nauvoo, he had quite a bit of success on the outskirts in Wisconsin and Michigan. Over the next 12 years, as the Mormons headed west toward the Rocky Mountains, the Strangites, as they'd come to be called, would build up a membership of nearly 12,000 people at its climax. However, the members would soon learn that Strang was having an affair with one of his secretaries, whom he dressed up as a man so she could accompany him on his missions to the eastern states. Some of his members, disaffectioned with his teachings, would ultimately pull pistols and shoot and pistol-whip James Strang, killing the man. His death would push away the majority of his members, though a few Strangites still live in Wisconsin today. John Page would leave the Strangites and return to Independence and help a few disfellowed members secure the temple lot, where the temple was going to be built. They'd come to be known as the Kendrickites, and they still own a portion of the temple lot in Independence, Missouri, and they have around 7,000 members at this day. Now, as we won't be talking about her going forward, what happened to Emma Smith? Emma wouldn't ever warm up to Brigham Young, and felt herself growing distant from the new church leadership. Unlike others in her family, Emma didn't fall for James Strang's church. As Brigham Young would lead the Mormons from Nauvoo toward the Rocky Mountains, Emma would find herself practically alone in Nauvoo with her children. Years later, she'd fall in love with the local non-member in Nauvoo, and for the rest of her life, they would operate a store in that city. Now, the remaining people that stayed in Nauvoo that didn't believe in Brigham still felt like Mormons, but they needed a leader. So in 1860, 14 years after Brigham Young was sustained, Emma's son, 
Joseph Smith III was nominated to be the new leader of the remaining Mormons in Nauvoo. Joseph Smith III would accept this calling as a new prophet, and they'd establish a church in 1872 called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This break-off group of the church will also make its way back to Independence, Missouri. One of the primary standards for this Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that it claimed a direct lineage to Joseph Smith. This would be the case until 2005, when no descendant was available to lead the reorganized church, and that standard was dropped by the wayside. Today, there are around 250,000 members of the organized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They've changed their name to the Community of Christ to try to better fit in with local Christians. But more importantly, as the Mormons headed west toward the Rocky Mountains, the reorganized church stayed in the east, and they claimed most of the priceless Mormon objects left behind. Things like the Kirtland Temple and the majority of the land in Independence, Missouri. Over the years, however, as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Salt Lake City would skyrocket in its growth, the reorganized church would falter. As its membership numbers would drop and debts would come due, they would sell large tracts of land in Independence and Nauvoo back to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They would also sell back the printer's manuscript to the Book of Mormon, to the church in 2017 for $35 million. So there, we've covered the schisms and the breakoff groups. Now we can focus on Brigham Young and what happened with the church going forward. Now, lastly, where can you see objects on Brigham Young's transfiguration? There is no specific object. I know, nice joke. You can, however, read the hundreds and hundreds of journal entries that have popped up over the years for Mormons that attended the succession meeting on August 8th of 1844. Minor details vary from all of them, but the basic concept is the same. One such journal entry that I read recorded that when Brigham Young took the stage, quote, at that moment, Brigham Young took the likeness of Joseph Smith. It was as if Joseph Smith was speaking to us. He looked like Joseph and spoke in a voice of Joseph. People all over were staring. The mantle of Joseph Smith had fallen upon Brigham Young's shoulders. End quote. The succession crisis was over. The Mormons found the man that God had called to lead them going forward. They'd need that firm belief, because the Nauvoo Charter is about to be dissolved and the Mormons won't be welcome in Nauvoo anymore. Brigham Young, the Apostles, and the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would set their eyes to the West. So, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects. Episode number 34, Brigham's Transfiguration. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomc at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please like or share it on social media or leave me a quick review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>